Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Durnley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we monitor further Ukrainian advances across the front lines, assess the highest level trip by a US official to China since 2018, and speak again to the CEO of the Halo Trust about clearing landmines and the upcoming Ukraine Recovery Conference. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in faith. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 19th of June, one year and 115 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our Associate Editor of Defence, Dominic Nichols, our usual host of the podcast, David Knowles, on the ground in Ukraine, and former Major General James Cowan from the Halo Trust. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the battlefield. So, overnight... Uh, four caliber cruise missiles, four Shahid drones fired at Ukraine, all shot down according to the Ukraine Air Force. Other than that, it looks like there has been there have been small advances across all sectors of this front. Now, we've got to kind of decide what we're going to call it. Phillips O'Brien from the uh, University of St Andrews is calling the area between the kind of bend in the Dnipro River along to Donetsk the central front, which seems about about reasonable if you talk about Hezon being south and then sort of Bakhmut north being the east. So for easy shorthand, I'm going to refer to that as the central front from now on, which includes sort of going, at the moment, the Ukraine have been trying to push directly south from Zaporizhia, that, that area, sort of southeast from through the Vladar area and then east also through through Bakhmut. So that that other bit sort of heading south as if you are as if they are as we would expect trying to cut the land bridge that Russia has established. That is what Phillips O'Brien's referring to as the central front. So if you hear me say that that's where that's where I mean. They have been making small gains at cost across all all sectors. Now the town of Piatihakti which uh, which is to the west of that line and thank you uh, Aliona, for the, um, for the pronunciation there. So about 30 k south of Zaporizhia, right on that bend, the the elbow in the in the Dnipro River. That's where the that's where that town is. That was um, taken yesterday. Now across, I say across sectors, it, they are making small, steady gains. We're talking kilometers rather than you know, anything more substantial. I still think this is effectively uh, a raid in in force, wrecking in, in strength, looking for the dispositions of the Russian forces, getting them to commit their reserves, looking for Russia to commit things like uh, aviation. So we've seen an uptick in 
in Russian air activity and in, and helicopter activity. Air generally refers to sort of fixed-wing fighter jets. Um, aviation tends, tends to refer to helicopters. But we've seen an uptick in both of those. KA-52 attack helicopters more in action and more shot down, two shot down over the weekend. So, you know, you never want one of those things in your backyard. But actually, the fact that they are having to be committed by Russia, it shows where they feel under pressure. So that's happening across the front. Now, today's UK Defence Intelligence report confirms news from last week that over the last 10 days, Russia started moving forces out, moving, relocating elements from what they uh, term the Dnipro group of forces from the eastern bank of the Dnipro River. So the area that was flooded when the uh, when the dam was destroyed a couple of weeks ago, Russian forces in that area have been um, thinned out and they are reinforcing the Zaporizhia and Bakhmut sectors. That's said to involve several thousand troops from Russia's 49th Army, including the 34th Separate, separate Motorized Brigade, as well as Airborne Forces, the VDV, which should be better trained, equipped and led, although quite what state they're in after uh, nearly a year and a half of fighting, uh, we don't think they're anything like their normal strength and other naval infantry units as well. That is interesting. I mean, when you start moving around big big formations like that, um, it takes time, obviously. It takes a lot of coordination and it's very obvious. It's very obvious visually. You'll be able to see it. You'll be able to see it from space. You should be able to see it with the... Uh, drones, whatever that they've got up. You'll also be able to see it electromagnetically. You'll see a spike in the radio traffic. So you'll know that something's moving somewhere. So all that adds adds friction, adds fog. But until those forces are in position, then it's almost as much of a liability. The movement, the actual physical movement of forces is as much a liability to the force doing the moving as it then will eventually be to the, uh, to the, to the opposing side. So this is an opportunity there for... Um, Russia, obviously, to to strengthen certain areas where it wants to, but it is in and of itself very vulnerable while whilst it's on the move. It obviously has to has to protect itself. You'd, you'd expect it to have flank cover and overhead cover as well. But um, you know, if a lot of the effort and the and the horsepower, the intellectual horsepower, is is done on actually moving you in, in good order across hundreds of kilometres, then there's less horsepower to to actually think about defending yourself and fighting the enemy. So this is they are vulnerable is all I'm is all I'm saying. But they seem to be on the move at the moment. It's led to increased speculation that with the uh, much reduced water levels above the dam, Ukraine could look to get away over what's uh, what's left of the waterway there. So there's nearly 200 kilometres of the Dnipro River between where the dam was and and sort of go back east and north between the dam and the, the front lines just south of Zaporizhia, about 200 k's there of that front. So if Russia's thinning that out, there's an opportunity. Now that that's boggy and marshy and it you know, used, to have a, used to have a big reservoir sat on top of it, but um, that will increasingly, the earth there will increasingly be baked in the summer sun. Very unlikely it would be able to support heavy armour like tanks and what have you, but might support lighter vehicles. And it is unlikely that Ukraine, with the proven ability to innovate and the proven desire to spook the Russians every opportunity, unlikely they won't try something. It's a very inviting and less well-defended flank, so we'll keep our eye on that. Now, elsewhere over the weekend, a number of Russian ammunition dumps in um, Hezon Oblast went up in flames. So going sort of west to east from the Black Sea coast, sort of in line due south of the Delta of the Dnipro River, so where the river empties out into the Black Sea, come come south of there. So from there, a line a line going east. Yeah, you've got the areas of Luzerne and just to the east of that, Skadovsk. And they're, so they're about 40k south of the delta. And then further to the east, just above Crimea, Rykove and a little further east, um, Henichensk. And those last two are about 120k 
behind the line. So a big line there of major ammunition dumps that all went up in smoke over the weekend. Similar to last summer, July, August last year, when a number of such places were being destroyed. That was then put put down last year to HIMARS strikes, long-range precision artillery. That moved uh, that caused Russia to move these things out of range of HIMARS and get them get them even further away. So we saw a lull over winter and spring when they were they were not in range. Um, Ukraine couldn't get to them. We think these ones that are being hit now are probably storm shadow missiles, cruise missiles, British supplied uh, or other similar long-range cruise missiles that we've not really heard about yet. There's speculation that Storm Shadow is not the only thing that can get that far. But, you know, they're now back in back in range, so that, that, will, that will have an effect on the battlefield. Now, elsewhere, Colonel Margot Grosberg, who is the Estonia's Defence Forces Intelligence Chief, he said that the Ukrainian army has lost less than 10% of the uh, Western equipment it was gifted so far. He's speaking to Estonian news outlet ARR, uh, and he said he highlighted the superior protection of of the Western equipment, um, which means that more people are surviving to fight again. As we said last week, if you can regenerate them and regenerate the equipment, then you still have your capability. And on the counteroffensive, he said that the vast majority of the recently trained Ukrainian units have not yet participated, which adds to this idea that they're still, Ukraine is still doing recce in force, just looking for the gaps, looking to invite Russia to expose where the forces are and where the EW is and where their, their guns are sighted and so on and so forth. So I think they're still doing that before we've before we we've not yet seen any real deployment of these. We think there's we think they've got twelve new brigades, of which nine we think are are built around Western Western equipment. So Colonel uh, Grosberg also said that they're not expecting any swift offensive by Ukraine in the near future. They feel, still think albeit it's happening at, at some significant size and it's incredibly violent and there are casualties on both sides, lots of casualties on both sides. It's not yet the major, major offensive. Uh, and just one final one. Um, a report out last Thursday came from the UN. I've been very critical of the UN, as you know, but I'm, I'm very happy to highlight where I think they're, they're getting it right. So they put a report out on Thursday uh, well, they're saying widespread use of torture by Russian military in Ukraine appears deliberate. So this was a report out from the team of the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, Alice Edwards, uh, and the report um, expressed alarm at testimonies that appear to indicate that Russian military forces in Ukraine are consistently and intentionally inflicting severe physical and psychological pain and suffering on um, civilians and, and prisoners of war. So the team sent a letter to, to Russian authorities, jointly signed by, uh, by Ms. Edwards and other independent UN experts, uh, saying that torture is allegedly being carried out to extract intelligence or force confessions, or because people have shown, either through what they say or tattoos and what have you, former membership or support for, for Ukrainian armed forces. So the text of the, the report says, the alleged practices include electric shocks, beatings, hooding, mock executions and other threats of death. If, if established, they would constitute individual violations and may also amount to a pattern of state-endorsed torture or other cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. Uh, the team, the UN team said the consistency and methods of the alleged torture suggest a level of coordination, planning and organisation, as well as the direct authorisation uh, and deliberate policy of official or official tolerance, sorry, or official tolerance from superior authorities. So I think that's a it's a pretty strong report. No indication yet that Russian authorities have responded to the letter. Um, yeah, and I, I said I'm I, I'm not uh, 
not shy at all to say, well, I think the UN are getting it right. So that um, that's out there. You'll be able to find it on their website. And I, I hope that will be used uh, to build uh, build a case for uh, for any future actions through the ICC. Well, thank you very much, Dom. There's been no shortage of political developments either. I'll come to the fallout from the African leaders' visits to Kiev and Moscow in a moment. But the big diplomatic story of this morning is the US Secretary of State's visit to China, which began over the weekend. Now, we've not been expecting any breakthroughs as such, but it is significant that in the past couple of hours or so, President Xi did meet with Mr. Blinken to cap off the meeting, something we were not sure would take place. He is, of course, the highest ranking US official to meet with President Xi since 2018. Now, President Xi has released a statement, which I'll read now. The Chinese side has made our position clear and the two sides have agreed to follow through on the common understanding that President Biden and I had reached in Bali. They're referring, of course, to the pairs meeting at the G20 summit last November. The two sides have also made progress and reached agreement on some specific issues. This is very good. Now, I don't need to remind listeners as to the numerous issues the two countries are in disagreement over. It's not just Russia's encroachment in Ukraine, but China's assertion of territorial rights over the self-governing island of Taiwan and its establishment of military bases in the South China Sea. The rhetoric between the two powers has been heated, to say the least. The last visit was cancelled when a Chinese spy balloon was shot down over the US, which I'm sure listeners will recall. So why now? Well, the motivations from a Western standpoint are obvious in relation to Ukraine, at least, to deter Xi from propping up Putin in exchange, one assumes, for commitments not to cut China off from certain economic agreements. Many argue this should have been happening right at the start of the war in that crucial window when the shock was raw. The current state of China's economy, though, is particularly unfavourable, despite optimistic expectations following three years of zero COVID, that policy designed, of course, to try and stop COVID spreading at all around the country. The recovery has fallen short of Beijing's aspirations. Western demand is down as businesses become increasingly wary of China's economic fragility and manufacturing output remains low. Inflation is also high, with the People's Bank of China recently opting to lower rates in an attempt to stimulate the economy. I expect we'll hear more from the summit over the coming days, so more on that as we get it. The other major bit, a major diplomatic development is, of course, the African peace mission to Ukraine and Russia that we reported on as they arrived in Kyiv on Friday. After their visit, which involved a meeting with President Zelensky, they went onwards to Moscow, where they met with Putin. I won't repeat the context I gave on Friday for the visit, only to say that African nations do have a major stake in this war, not least because of the impact of it on global food prices. Indeed, after visiting both countries, the South African president, Cyril Ramaphosa, listed his 10 principles for ending the war, which included unimpeded grain exports, surprise, surprise, as well as de-escalation, the recognition of countries' sovereignty as laid out in the UN Charter, security guarantees for all countries, and sending POWs and children back to their countries of origin. Now, my own take on the list is that there are more 
veiled rebukes in there of the Russian position than of the Ukrainian, especially in the context of referencing the charter and children. Indeed, the Kremlin deemed them very difficult to implement almost as immediately as they were announced. President Zelensky, it has to be said, has also reiterated this morning that no peace can be agreed until Russia leaves their territory. But I sense a slight, slight more sort of softness towards the African position than perhaps coming out of the Kremlin. Let's face it, all these summits, though, are of negligible influence until something profound changes in either the military or political spheres, as I've said before. But they do reveal the world is growing anxious at the duration of this war, which could favour either side, depending on which one countries, which bloc countries align themselves with. And I sense that Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary of NATO, agrees. He's gone so far as to warn yesterday against premature peace talks between Ukraine and Russia, suggesting that it would leave Zelensky's troops vulnerable to a decision dictated by Moscow. I'll quote from him. He was speaking in the German newspaper Welt on Sunday. We all want this war to end, but the peace for peace to be sustainable, it must be just. Peace cannot mean freezing the conflict and accepting a deal dictated by Russia. Only Ukraine alone can define the acceptable conditions for peace. We need to make sure that when this war ends, there are credible agreements for Ukraine's security so that Russia cannot rearm and attack again and the cycle of Russian aggression is broken. And I think what's interesting about that perspective is that's very, very much the key line on this. There's no deviation whatsoever from Kiev's position with regard to what peace looks like in this war. Now, finally, whilst we're on the subject of big international bodies, the UN has said that Russia has declined the organisation's request to access Russian-controlled areas of Ukraine, which have been affected by flooding following the breach of the Kokovka Dam in order to deliver aid. So Denise Brown, the UN's humanitarian coordinator for Ukraine, has said in a statement The UN has been engaging with the governments of Ukraine and the Russian Federation regarding effective delivery of humanitarian aid to all people affected by the devastating destruction of the dam. The government of the Russian Federation has so far declined our request to access the areas under its temporary military control. The UN will continue to engage to seek necessary access. We urge the Russian authorities to act in accordance with their obligations under international humanitarian law. Aid cannot be denied to people who need it. The UN will continue to do all it can to reach people, including those suffering as a result of the recent dam destruction, who urgently need life-saving assistance no matter where they are. Does this statement come as a surprise? Does the Russian denial come as a surprise? No, but it will further concern, I think, uh, of those who are anxious about extended access to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which is why, of course, having a country like China involved in renewed discussions with the West may be significant as a way around this, but we shall see. Anyway, so that's where we are internationally. I have some more updates on Russia later. But first, let's catch up now with David Knowles on his journey across Ukraine David, this is London Calling. I understand you've been all over the country since we left you on Friday. So where did you go after we left you then? Hi, Francis. Hi, everyone. Um, well, I'm calling you now from uh, Tara Shevchenko Park in the centre of Kiev. To my right is the monument to Tara Shevchenko. If you remember, um, he is one of the great, if not the great, Ukrainian poet, um, uh, artist, writer. Um, that monument is still covered in uh, sort of protective cladding. 
Uh, there are families walking around me. There's a, a small child with a, with a football and, and a girl waving a, with a small um, German flag, funnily enough. Ahead of me, there's, a, there's an open cafe. I can see an, an, old, an old woman with presumably one of her grandchildren rocking them gently to sleep in a, in a pushchair. Uh, there's a fountain and a beautiful sort of yellow uh, classical building to my left. And uh, one of the points of invincibility, one of the yurts of invincibility as well, is actually in this park. I, I sort of race to be here because it's cooler. Kiev is very hot today. And I'm in the, in the shade under the trees. So I haven't actually put my head in the yurt yet. But it's a, a very, I mean, it's a very peaceful um, summer scene here. Um, as far as I know, I just checked the app and actually there's no... Uh, as far as I can see at the moment, there's no air alert over Ukraine. So hopefully this this uh, report will go uninterrupted. But yeah, it's been a it's been a big few days, a lot of travel. Um, I'll come back. We'll come back to keep maybe later, or maybe, maybe another day actually, because because there's still a few details I think to, to be ironed out there. There's some interesting things happened. But yesterday, uh, well on Friday, on Friday it was in Kiev, and on Saturday went to drove with the volunteers, accompanied the volunteers down to Kharkiv. Um, it's a long drive over the high steppe, lots of forest, lots of farmland, uh, very, very green, the middle of summer. Um, and as you get closer to you know, the front line, closer to the Russian border, you do see more military vehicles. There are a few checkpoints. Uh, and we came into Kharkiv. Kharkiv, an absolutely beautiful city. I mean, it, it's so sad to see what's happened to it. We were um, the hotel owner on discovering that the volunteers were British insisted on coming out and uh, giving a little tour of, this, of the centre of the city. Um, it, I mean, we looked around and almost every single building was damaged. There's a lot of boarded up shops, a lot of boarded up restaurants, uh, a lot of, you know, there are people out, but, you know, we're told that a lot of people have, have left the city. You know, it's not very far from, from the Russian border. Um, and it was incredibly sad to see, really. It's, um, you know, we saw the, the university building is still absolutely gutted. Um, uh, mostly, as I said, most of the houses, quite a few of the churches as well, actually, you can see on the golden domes, uh, the, the sort of plating of, of the of the towers has been has been chipped and and destroyed by some of the missiles and, and drones fired at Kharkiv. Um, so that was Kharkiv, and then we we, we we left fairly early in the morning. Uh, the group of volunteers I was travelling with, we went down to Kramatorsk, obviously very very close to Bakhmut, to to that area where one of the axes of the Ukrainian counteroffensive is taking place. Um, it it, it it, you're, you're in, I mean, you're traveling when you're going to Kramatorsk, you're going through a lot of the areas that have been heavily contested over the past year um, and going through many of the areas that were Russian controlled and have now been liberated by the Ukrainian armed forces. So really, the closer you get, the more uh, astonishing the, the damage. Um, you know, we drove through several villages uh, where not a single house was, was unscarred. Most had lost their roofs. Um, I didn't. I think we went through one village and you didn't see a single window pane still present and very few people in a few of them as well. You also see quite a few, I mean, going through the rest of the country has been notable in that um, a lot of the Russian sort of discarded or destroyed Russian armor has been cleared up and, and moved elsewhere um, in in the edge of Kharkiv region, Kharkiv Oblast and to Donetsk. Um, quite a lot of it is still just by the side of the road. So we saw several, we saw, we saw a, a tank um, that had its turret blown off, which had clearly been hit by something and had, and had sort of trundled to the side of the road and trundled off the road. Um, that was at the point, actually, we, we were in between two minefields going towards Kramatorsk. And, you know, the checkpoints there, we've noticed around the rest of the country, that some of the soldiers you see, I wouldn't say they're exactly friendly. I mean, they're prof- they are professional, they have a job to do, but they, they see you, they nod and they wave you on. And usually an explanation of, yeah, well, it's, aid to the front line gets you through and n- not not at all when you're actually getting near the front these these guys are these guys are you know take take it incredibly seriously and i think once i've shown my press pass we got stopped about four or five times four or five checkpoints to get into kramatorsk um and and it was it's not just the the villages um you know there's a distinct lack of people in some of these places and you can see these vast uh sort of factories and 
pieces of industry which have been which have also been hit and, and gutted and totally destroyed. I mean, there's one. I think we. I think this is as we were going through Zoom. Uh, there was an apartment building, which I think the picture is quite famous. So I can't quite place when it happened in my head, but half of the apartment, the, the sort of middle the middle section of the apartment building has been completely destroyed. So you see a load of apartments on one side, then just a space, and then the rest of the apartments on the other side, but it used to be one building. So, you know, this is the, this is an area where Russian artillery did, did its absolute worst and was, was heavily fought over over the, past, um, over the past year, year and a half. Um, we went. We got into Kramatorsk, another completely beautiful town. I mean, broad boulevards. You know, the flowers. The flowers are, are open, and sort of people are wandering about, and it's it's incredibly beautiful. And we met the volunteers in a sort of little side park. Uh, sorry, that's where we parked. We met the sort of soldiers from the various units that were collecting collecting the, the kit that had been brought to them, uh, and it was a really affecting scene. Um, there were, I think, two or three different. Um, uh, Units that had come to collect stuff from the volunteers, and sort of rather one of the one of the points of um, similarity I think between a British and Ukrainian culture is an incredible sort of self-deprecation and a, a, a certain modesty. So you had Ukrainian soldiers saying, you know, thank you very much, uh, thank you very much for bringing this stuff, and the British volunteers saying, oh no no no, thank you, thank you for for for, for doing what you do, and the Ukrainian soldiers saying, no no no, thank you, thank you. I said that was that was sort of slightly amusing to watch. Um, and we, I spoke to a few of the soldiers. We didn't have much time there. We had to sort of get out and get the train. Um, but it was very affecting. The, the, the brigade commander, an incredibly formidable woman with tattoos all over her arms and on her neck as well. I asked her, you know, a little bit about what receiving this this help from the UK. You know, people had driven 1,500 miles more to, to bring the stuff to Ukraine. What it what it meant to them, and what and and she she welled up and found it difficult to answer. Um, and I, I asked her as well, you know, when when do you think these things, these trucks, this, this medical aid, the drones, etc., when do you think the, the, this will get to the front line? And she said, oh, later this afternoon, you know, we go, we're going straight back. Um, so that was, I mean, I spoke to several of the other uh, soldiers, and just to say, all of these interviews will be uh, will be in the special podcasts we devote to this to this trip and to this journey. But to sum them up, I spoke to uh, one woman. Actually, sorry, she wasn't a soldier; she was a volunteer who'd been with the units and been sort of helping them with aid, helping them with you know any issues or problems they encountered. Um, and one, it was interesting to hear that you know she'd she'd sort of dropped she she was a new mother and had dropped everything at the outbreak of the full scale invasion, and had just you know, become a bit of a, a bit of a mother to to the soldiers. She said that's how they referred to her as, as their mother. And the British volunteers had actually brought um, leftover from, a, as I was told, leftover from a, a coronation lunch, a British the King's coronation lunch, several sort of small plastic union union flags, and they gave them to the, these Ukrainian soldiers and volunteers. And uh, the, the volunteer I interviewed had been given three, so I asked her, you know, what will you do with these? Where, have you thought about where to put them? And she said, one she'll take home, she'll keep with her. Uh, one she'll give to her son, so he can take it to school. So his classmates can see uh, that Ukraine has friends and allies. And, w- and the final one, she said she would take to her parents, but she can't do that yet because they live in occupied Melitopol. And at that, she welled up and, and turned away. Uh, the thoughts of her parents still living under Russian occupation was was too much. Um, and we sort of en- we ended it there. And um, yeah, and then after that, we we moved out. Well, we shared we shared some pizza and some. Uh, some delicious soup with, with, the, with these guys, and then had to get out because uh, Kramatorsk is still fairly live. Um, and um, also, the train the train leaves on time in Ukraine, as, as Dominic was knows. So we got, went to the station and got on a, an air conditioned 
on time, a train with enough seats for everybody that was cheap, which took about seven to eight hours to get back to Kiev. And I really do think uh, British Rail or British Railways could learn something from that. It was quite astonishing to sort of, you know, the train is remember the train is full of soldiers either going on leave or going back for training, um, and it left on time. It was perfectly comfortable and a really, really, yeah, really smooth ride. Uh, got back to Kiev late last night. And gosh, what have we been doing since? Um, I slept for about 10 hours because every night I've you know, been working, trying to get all these interviews sort of labeled correctly so we can come back to them and edit them together. This morning, met a contact for a sort of long breakfast, which was very interesting. And uh, yeah, uh, just doing more interviews, speaking to more people around Kiev. So if you, if you, I don't know if you're wandering through Tarashoshenko Park at the moment, do do wave. Um, I can, I'm, on, I'm on the right near the fountain. But Francis, that gives you a sense, I think, of, um, of, of what we've been up to in the last few days. One thing maybe to say is driving across Ukraine and, and taking the train and so on, unless you've sort of done it, nothing prepares you just for the vast scale of the country. It's such a big country. We, Francis, you and I come from a, a I would say, a medium, medium to small size country. But really, you know, it takes seven hours to get to Kramatorsk, which is about uh, about 40 minutes from Bakhmut, I say roughly. And it's very easy to think when you're walking around Kiev, as you know, as I am now, in a in a beautiful sort of manicured garden with a fountain, with with everything that everything feels very far away. But that's of course not necessarily true. Everybody here will be will have been affected by the war in different ways. Whether it's having friends going to fight and losing them, whether it's uh, hearing the air alert and seeing and um, experiencing the missile strikes, um, whether it's dealing with foreigners coming in and offering aid. There's, there's all sorts of ways, uh, but it's. That, that changes subtly and, and is really dependent on, on where you are, I think, quite a lot. But it's, it, it is absolutely eye-opening. And um, it, it, seeing a beautiful city like Kharkiv and, and, and Kramatorsk and, and, and elsewhere, really, that we've been driving through and seeing some of the damage that's been inflicted on it, is, it, it, opens, it seeing the destroyed villages opens your eyes to just how destructive and um, utterly total... Um, utterly total what being on the receiving end of a barrage of Russian artillery that lasts for weeks and months actually looks like. And what it looks like is a village with no people, with no roofs, with no, with no um, windows, which has been leveled to the ground and may never be inhabited again. That, that's what it looks like. That's the reality of it. Well, thank you very much, David. And we'll come back to you at the end, as I say. Now, it's our privilege to be joined again on the podcast by James Cowan, former general in the British Army with experience in Iraq, Zimbabwe, Hong Kong, among many other places. He's also been CEO of the Halo Trust since 2015. That's a humanitarian non-government organisation which primarily works to clear landmines and other explosive devices left behind by conflicts. It has over 10,000 staff worldwide running operations in 28 countries countries and has destroyed over 1.5 million landmines and over 11 million pieces of large caliber ordnance since its foundation in 1988. Mr. Cohen, thank you very much for your time today. We were keen to bring you back to discuss the upcoming Ukraine recovery conference here in London that I talked about with Aliona Hlivko last week. But before we turn to that, can you update us on Halo's latest work in Ukraine, particularly in light of the movement of mines after the destruction of the dam? So the, the Halo Trust, we've been in Ukraine actually since 2015. And because we've been there so long and preceding the February invasion, we have an unparalleled insight into the state of the country. And in fact, our headquarters was in Kramatorsk, which we've just heard about in the previous section of this podcast. And because we work across the country, we have a pretty good insight into what is taking place. 
down in Hesson, um, I think it's extremely interesting. Um, water levels are receding around Mikhailov, um, but whilst roads and bridges to the minefields are open again, most of the seven minefields we were working on, on a tributary of the Dnipro, the Inhulets, are still partially flooded. And that's pretty concerning because we'd actually already cleared 480 anti-tank mines um, from around there, but now, of course, uh, they're covered in mud and we can't do anything until the ground dries out further. Uh, most of the houses near these minefields are flooded and, of course, the crops are ruined. And, of course, um, Ukraine is one of the world's great wheat producers and the fact that so much agricultural land is not in productive use at the moment is both ruinous to the Ukrainian economy but, of course, uh, of deep concern globally. Uh, I also work in Somalia where there is a famine now as a direct result of the Ukraine war. So this is the, the exact consequence, the direct consequence of what's taking place with the destruction of the dam. Um, we're also seeing some other interesting technical things. Um, there's a thing called the YRAM, Yarm Sea Mine. This is a, a small sea mine designed to be used in shallow waters, and the Russians have placed these um, on the banks of the Dnipro. But of course, once they flooded it, these mines floated off, they have a tilt switch, and the big explosions you're seeing in water is usually a yarn mine detonating because it's been shifted. It's an interesting and difficult technical aspect, uh, which adds to the, the volume of normal conventional landmines, both anti-tank and anti-personnel that we're seeing in the area. Thank you very much. Well, I know that Dom will be wanting to ask some more about that in a moment. But before we turn to specifics on that, turning to this week, what are you hoping to hear at the Ukraine Reconstruction Conference. I spoke about it a little bit in the podcast last week for providing some context on this, but it's a big moment. And interested to hear your perspective and what you're expecting to see there. Yeah, well, first of all, I'd like to congratulate the British and Ukrainian governments. I mean, it's actually a, hosted by the Ukrainians, a bit like the Eurovision Song Contest, but of a rather more serious nature. But because it's, being, uh, it's taking place in London, I think the British government deserves a public congratulations for taking the initiative. Uh, and allowing the Ukrainians to come. It's actually being billed as the Ukraine Recovery rather than Reconstruction Conference, and that implies a, bro a broader remit. But what do I want? Well, let's put it this way. This is a 1,000-kilometre front. To put that uh, in comparative terms, uh, the DMZ in Korea is only 128 kilometres long. This is the largest defensive belt constructed in Europe since the Second World War. It's akin, really, to uh, the German defences from Normandy through to Denmark. Uh, and it's likely to contain somewhere in the region of 2 million landmines. Now, we've actually cleared 10,000 landmines in the last year, February to February. But really, that's nothing by comparison with the 2 million that we assess, and we don't know for sure, that is in the, uh, the Russian defence belt. So, um, assuming that the Ukrainians are successful, and of course that is a big assumption, we need to scale up. We believe, and we've done this uh, planning in conjunction with the Ukrainian Deputy Prime Minister and her staff at the Ministry of the Economy, we need to think in terms of uh, the largest landmine clearance uh, operation ever conducted. We're talking about 1,000 kilometres, 10,000 deminers, and billions of dollars needed to conduct this work. And so what we want from the conference this week is to essentially mobilise 
donors who can see the value of this, both from the private sector and from governments, to help us with this vital humanitarian work. Just on the on the numbers there, I saw that the uh, U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Bridget Brink, has said that the full scale invasion has contaminated her words contaminated thirty percent of Ukraine with landmines and explosive hazards. I mean, is that is that the roughly is that the kind of rough order of magnitude figure you're you're working from? And 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 just regardless of the figure, how do you go about prioritizing your work? Don, that's absolutely the vital question. So that sort of figure is is correct. Uh, the Ukrainians themselves. Uh, have issued a press statement saying that they are planning to return 470,000 hectares of the most valuable agricultural land to productive use within four years. So how do we go about planning this? Well, the the first thing to do, as every ex-military person on this call will know, is that time spent in reconnaissance is seldom wasted. And we invest a great deal of time in survey because you can waste a lot of money clearing landmines from places that don't have them. If you can do that survey Uh, well and as tightly as you can, you can narrow down the area of contamination very significantly. And also, having decided there is no contamination, you can cancel it from the the, uh, landmine database, and then you can allow farmers safely to get back to work on that land or people to reoccupy homes. So survey is at the heart of this. And secondly, we're working with several very almost visionary, I think, private donors who are investing in the mechanisation of our work. Landmine clearance is famous, you know, Princess Diana, whatever, for people on their hands and knees working bravely in minefields, but in slow and painstaking ways. We want to mechanise this. Uh, We are investing heavily in plant, uh, and we need a fleet of several hundred mechanical assets uh, to conduct this clearance work. And that will allow us to get agricultural land back into use as quickly as possible. Yeah, I mean, is there a role for AI in this? We hear that that's going to take over the world and kill us all. But before that, are there any opportunities for AI to go sort of auto auto mine mine searching, surveying, and, and so on? Is there anything at all there? Well, AI is interpretive. It is essentially there to look at databases and make uh, sensible decisions about the scale and density of contamination. And of course, it's 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 going to be extremely helpful for us. But ultimately, you need to do survey and that survey can be done from space Uh, for instance we're not just clearing landmines we're clearing artillery ammunition and a a big part is is tracking uh, fires using the same technology that um, is used in North America to track summer fires there Um, you can use the same to see fields that are aflame and see where uh, artillery strikes have taken place but we're also using uh, change data to identify how land is looking, and then from satellite imagery, open source satellite imagery, we're able to get the bigger picture. But once you have that bigger picture, you then need to conduct detailed survey. We talk to communities, and of course, one of the problems with talking to communities is that if those communities have fled and whole areas are depopulated, you don't have access to that that human intelligence to give you knowledge of where the landmines are. So ultimately, you have to use technical survey. Um, where we use mine detectors, uh, which can be quite large-scale mine detectors or or mounted on drones um, to uh, assess the actual perimeter of any given minefield. Thanks. Now, looking at the Ukraine Recovery Conference itself, um, I I just wonder who's going to be doing the the coordination of that. I think you may well say it comes from the Ukrainian Ministry of the Economy. And I'm 
I'm guessing your work is is somewhat standalone, or do you have a requirement to coordinate with with other agencies to any degree? And if so, how will that work? Well, the the, the conference is being coordinated by the British government, the Foreign Office, um, and various other Whitehall departments, <coughs> and the Ukrainians themselves. So that's the sort of core of how the conference works. Um, we we are working with. Uh, the Ukrainian Deputy Prime Minister, uh, she has responsibility for this. That's Yulia Sorovodenko. And we, we are holding joint meetings with her. And at one event that we'll be hosting, I'll be on the panel with her and we'll have some 200 people in the audience. And the aim is to talk to um, the agricultural sector, to the banking sector, to all the various private sectors that might seek to invest in Ukraine to seek their support for our work. And we already have a, a, quite a, a large number of um, private donors in the corporate space who are helping to fund our work. So we want to reach more of those during the course of the week. We're also obviously talking to the various governments that are present. And the Halo Trust is very lucky to be funded very generously by the United States, by Germany, by Britain, by the Netherlands, by you know all, all major uh, European countries, Canada, Japan, etc. So those those people are also in London this week, and we'll be talking to them too. Brilliant, thank you. And I mean, Halo Trust has a has a very difficult task at the best of times. But when we've chatted before, you've explained to me how you you also have on many occasions have to find a way to um, communicate, uh, certainly interact, maybe even coordinate with the former warring parties, including as you do with the the Taliban in, in Afghanistan. Have you so far had any dealings with uh, Russian forces? And um, can anything happen in an ongoing conflict, even well away from the fighting, to start that start that communication? How do you go about initiating such contact? Well, the fundamental duty of a humanitarian NGO, such as the Halo Trust, is to be there for all beneficiaries, irrespective of which side they're on. Because Innocent civilians, whether they be on the Ukrainian or Russian side of the line of control, are the people who are suffering uh, as a result of this landmine contamination. Years after the soldiers have left, there will still be civilians, women, children, men who are being killed or being wounded by landmines, which will remain in the ground and will not, will not cease to be dangerous until they are cleared because they are essentially hermetically sealed pieces of plastic. Um, so it's important that we can work on both sides of the line of control. But ultimately, the, the chance for us to work there is dependent upon um, the de facto authorities allowing us so to do. And if they're not willing to let us, um, then, of course, we, we can't force our presence upon people who don't want us there. So we, we work to persuade. And uh, if, if the Russians did want us there, we would be there. But at the moment, that isn't the case and so we only work on the Ukrainian side of the line of control. Just one final one, if I may, if I could abuse our position of, of inviting you on today and, and ask you to uh, remind and update us on Waterloo Uncovered. I was there over the weekend for my 30-year Sandhurst reunion, Water, the, battle, the battlefield of Waterloo. But the work you've done with Waterloo Uncovered, if you could just sort of remind us what, what that is. And if you're able to offer a view on why such work is so helpful for uh, vet veterans and others, who suffer physically and, and mentally as a result of military service or their experience? Yeah, it's a very off-topic and probably very unexpected for other listeners. Um, so Waterloo Uncovered is a little charity that does quite an unusual thing. It, um, it was founded by some 
archaeologists, some enthusiasts from university who happened to join the army. And they thought, wouldn't it be amazing if we could put our enthusiasm for archaeology to, to good use in the support of uh, veteran servicemen and women who've suffered from the effects of recent conflicts. So they focused it on the battlefield of Waterloo. And every summer they go out to Waterloo and there is an archaeological dig. It's most recently been around uh, the Chateau of Hougamont and other key uh, features of the battlefield. And these uh, ex-service men and women come and take part. And it's amazingly therapeutic to spend a few weeks in the summer sun in Belgium um, exploring uh, a war of two centuries ago, but in really very peaceful circumstances. They find it incredibly therapeutic. They also learn a lot. And there's a great deal of uh, scholarship that has come out of um, the, the Waterloo Uncovered endeavour. It's an amazing little charity and it does uh, an amazing amount for very little money for um, some service men and women who desperately need it. So I strongly recommend it to to all listeners. I'm I'm actually a trustee of the charity. I wasn't expecting this question, but Dom, thank you for giving me the chance to uh, explain the work of Waterloo Uncovered. There's talks about Russian money that's been held by countries due to sanctions and the sort, or indeed reparations after the war, going on the sort of projects that you work on. Has there been any hint, have you received any information that would suggest that there will be money of Russia that's been held as a consequence of the sanction programme that will go to programmes like yours or others? Well, Russian money really falls in two categories. The first is Russian state money, uh, and there is quite a, a large amount of Russian money that is held in, in abroad in Western capitals. And there are precedents for its use. Uh, the Afghan state reserves um, were appropriated by the Americans in a law passed which uh, gave those half those state reserves to the victims of 9-11. The Canadians have passed a law, the Swiss, I think, have passed a law making it possible to appropriate liquid assets from the state. But there is also private money. And of course, the most notable example is the sale of uh, Chelsea Football Club and the, and the fact that £2.3 billion of that sale are held in a current account. That money is still in that current account, has not yet been dispersed. Um, it's not for me to say the, what the cause of that problem is, uh, but as uh, someone who runs a charity that could make extremely good use of some of that money to help uh, the people, the poor people of Ukraine, I would strongly encourage resolution to that problem as soon as possible. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Cowan, uh, for your time. Uh, just one final question from me, if I may, which is, since we're on the subject of history, it's well known, of course, that in Belgium and in France, to this day, there is the so-called iron harvest of shells and munitions left over from the First World War, which are churned up by farming, left at the side of the fields and are collected by the government. And to this day, if anybody is injured by those, they receive, I think, a pension that equates to what the pension was at the end of the First World War. I need to look that up exactly. But it's still very much part of the living experience, the living suffering a century on from the First World War. I just want to ask, how confident are you that with the technology we've developed now, that we won't a century from now still be finding a ton of munitions every year left over in Ukraine from this war, that we can actually clear it in a fairly short amount of time once the war is over? Do you think that's a, a pipe dream or do you think that's actually a, a reality now? 
Thanks, Francis. It's such a, an important question. So essentially, um, the reason why all that ammunition is still being found is the intensity of the fighting in the First World War. And I think some of us are aware that the fighting around Bakhmut is at a similar intensity to the battles of Verdun uh, and of the Somme or of Ypres. And it's quite possible, therefore, given the fact that it's not a formal minefield, it's just a very, very churned up piece of ground, that some of that ordinance may emerge in, in a very long time. However, the Halo Trust's work, we've been doing this work now for 35 years. We've actually managed to clear the whole of Mozambique. It took us 20 years to do, 200,000 landmines removed. It is actually possible to make a country free of landmines um, because the fighting there was less intense than in Ukraine. Uh, ultimately, we work on the, a very rough uh, rule of thumb, which is one day's fighting equals one month of clearance. And you can see immediately how long this is going to take. But it's only possible, there's a very misleading rule of thumb if, if the money isn't actually applied to uh, allow us to do this work. We need to raise money to make this possible. And we need to find that money, not only from governments, but from uh, the many generous donors who fund our work. And so uh, if we don't raise that money, those landmines will remain in the ground for an indefinite period of time. Well, thank you very much. That's really interesting. Um, I'll come back to you in a moment, if I may, for your final thought. But before I do, I just want to whiz through a few updates in Russia over the weekend very briefly. So these are that the jailed Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny's new trial began today on charges of extremism that could keep him in prison for decades. It's taking place in the penal colony where he's being held about 250 kilometres east of Moscow. He's already serving a nine-year sentence, of course, for parole violations fraud and contempt of court, but his supporters insist his arrest and imprisonment in 2021 was politically motivated, and we've covered that at length in the past. Mr Navalny is now facing multiple charges, including creating an extremist network and financing extremist activity, something that could extend his prison term by up to 30 years. It comes off the back of an anti-war activist dying in a Russian prison last week after being tortured. That's according to a human rights group. Rostov police have insisted that Anatoly Berezikov, 40, died by suicide following his arrest on suspicion of treason for putting up posters that called for the Russian army to leave Ukraine. However, First Department, that's the human rights NGO he worked for, said that he died the day before he was due to be released after being taken to a forest and wounded with a stun gun. A lawyer for the group has said that the alleged treatment of the activist, a supporter of Navalny, it has to be said, fitted a wider pattern of an attempt to crack down on dissent. Now, the other story I wanted to touch on is a collection of recent reports of stress within the Russian armed forces and the political apparatus, a theme actually we've talked about today in a slightly different context. So a doctor in Russia's Rostov region has said Russian soldiers traumatised by war are numbing themselves with alcohol and drugs, saying that Russia has completely failed to set up long-term treatment services for soldiers with post-traumatic stress disorder, which has left them, left them vulnerable to alcohol misuse. Apparently officials raised fears of a spike in drug addiction and the social Social consequences as soldiers started to return home. Cases of addiction to 
numerous substances such as methadrone are reportedly rising, according to the Russian government. And it sort of tallies with a story in The Telegraph over the weekend written by our very own James Kilner that the Kremlin has also doubled extraordinarily its wine allowance for Russian officials. Didn't know there even was an allowance in the first place. That's pretty amazing in itself. To alleviate the stress of Ukraine's counteroffensive. So sources have told uh, the Verska News website that Russian government officials have taken to drinking cognac throughout the day and turning up in some cases to meetings drunk and morose. They quote one of the sources as saying, not everyone used to start their day with a glass of vodka, but now I know many more people that do. For some, a glass has turned into a a bottle. Apparently, there's been a particular increase in drinking among government officials since March when Ukraine began talking up its planned offensives and Putin was placed on the International Criminal Court's wanted list. A small story, perhaps, but there have been similar reports floating around for recent weeks, as I say, that do suggest pressure within the organs of the state are on the rise. I'm sure pressure is immense in Ukraine, of course, as well. And if we see signs of that, we will report it. But what's interesting about this in the Russian context is the timing. As I say, we're only at the start of the offensive. Yet if these stories are true, then it's going to be a long few months for those already stretched to breaking. And it's in these contexts, of course, that mistakes are often made. But now it's time for our final thoughts. David, if I could come to you first, then Dom before Mr. Cowan for the final word. David Knowles. Uh, thanks, Francis. So there's a there's a square, not so much a square, there's a place in Kiev just opposite or next to St. Michael's Church at the other end of the long street. And you've got St. Sophia's on one side. Uh, and then you go down and then at the other end is St. Michael's. And in front of that is the area where the Ukrainians put captured Russian armor. So I went there last year. You'll see it quite a lot. You know, lots of world leaders go there. Uh, There's a collection of tanks, APCs, a self-propelled howitzer. And I went there on Friday with my friend. And the collection, what's displayed, has changed somewhat. There's more things. St. Michael's lit up, illuminated. So they've got the golden domes of the church shining over the city. You've got the statue of Olha of Kiev on the side, uh, with, I believe, on the one side of her is Yaroslav, and the other side I can't quite remember. They're all uncovered. The, the sandbags protecting these monuments have been taken down. They're lit up as well. If you look back up the street, you'll see St. Sophia's also lit up. So, and then you look around again in this sort of strange graveyard. Not a single one of the Russian armoured vehicles, tanks, missile systems has any lights on it. See, they look like sort of well, slightly like ghosts. We were peering into one APC and the attached, the attached sort of new description said that it had been captured and set on fire. And you almost can't see anything. These things are dark. They, they absorb light. They don't, they don't reflect it. They're sort of rusting and dark. And I thought that's, I don't know whether it was intended or not by the authorities, but the contrast of seeing the sort of the jewels of the crown of, of the centre of Kiev, the cultural um, jewels of the city, St. Michael's, St. Sophia's, and some of the statues lit up. And then the ghosts of the machines and the, the armour that come to take all that away, that come to destroy it, left in darkness. Silent ghosts. It was quite something. Um, if you do come to Kiev, it's, it's, it, it's rather easy to get to. And in the day, you know, it's, it's an odd experience because some people are walking around looking very grave. And you've also got kids sort of you know, swinging off the barrel and climbing all, over, climbing all over these tanks and so on. And at night, it's a completely different experience. It's very silent. And yeah, I'm not sure how much of a final thought that is, but it, it struck me that the things that were illuminated 
the things that should be illuminated were, and the things that should be left and should be shunned were, were exactly that. Well, thank you very much, David. Dominic Nichols, for your final thought. Well, I've also been in a bit of a reflective move over the weekend. As I said, I visited the battlefield of, of Waterloo and I was reminded that uh, Wellington, the Duke of Wellington there, said that it was a damn near run thing. There are no guarantees in warfare. And um, as we as we watch this counteroffensive, which is still very, very early days, I think it's fair to ask, again, what the purpose is of it. Is it to win the war? Is it to show massive, significant advances across all fronts. I don't think either of those things are the purpose of this offensive. I think it's still much more to show Ukraine has the ability to conduct combined arms warfare with the major counteroffensive much later this year, possibly even next with the IC, the, the US election at the back end of next year is the big line in the in the calendar. But regardless, even as Ukraine is making these these small advances, it is coming at a huge cost. And I just want to end, but it's it's worth remembering Wellington's quote after the Battle of Waterloo when he said, believe me, nothing except a battle lost can be half so melancholy as a battle won. The bravery of my troops hitherto saved me from the greater evil, but to win such a battle as this of Waterloo at the expense of so many gallant friends could only be termed a heavy misfortune, but for the result to the public. And I think it's worth reflecting on that. Thank you very much, Dom. Mr. Cowan, your very final thoughts for today. Thanks, Francis. Well, I used to be a soldier. Uh, I was a major general. And I think I understand the military aspects of this. And I think a year and a bit ago, I think most of us would have assumed that the Russian military would have put in a more uh, impressive performance than they have. And in almost every respect, the Russians appear to have failed as an army. But in one uh, important regard, they have, I think, had a success, and that is their engineering arm. Uh, the engineering branch of the Russian army has uh, perhaps sustained its reputation, and the the scale of Russian defences are impressive. And I think there is a danger in being lulled into the false belief that victory will always come easily to Ukraine. This is not going to be an easy victory. These defensive positions, which are uh, in in very large to a very large degree. Uh, supported by landmine laying, um, are going to be extremely difficult to breach. And Western vehicles are just as vulnerable to landmines as uh, Russian vehicles. So I think we need to be serious about the scale of this landmine contamination. It's going to take a huge amount uh, to clear it up and to return Ukraine uh, to the peaceful condition it enjoyed before this war. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do please refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. 
You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Giles Gear with executive producers David Knowles and Louisa Wells. <laughs>